Hello, and welcome to Shaking Scripture's Leaves, a podcast where we think through Scripture, one passage, one topic at a time, until we have shaken all of its leaves. This week, we're continuing our Romans series in the college ministry, and this one is on Romans 9. I hope it's helpful. I'm going to move this stand closer to everyone, since you all conveniently chose one side of the room to sit on. Honestly, I'm here for that. Hello. All right. All right. So if you guys want to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Now, I'm pretty excited about Romans chapter 9. So depending on who you ask, there are some people that look at Romans chapter 9 to 11 as essentially a side note in the book of Romans. But I've also heard others that refer to Romans 9 through 11 as the heart and soul of the entire epistle. And I personally am inclined to lean towards the latter opinion. I think that what Romans 9 through 11 addresses is actually vitally important. And personally, when I first mapped out this series months ago, Romans 9 through 11 was the particular section that I was most excited to teach. And so I'm really glad that we're here. And... Honestly, we're just going to start reading in verse 1. And Paul says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belong the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. Whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And the reason that I start by reading that section is that it's odd that it's there. Because for those of you who were here last week, you know that we're coming out of a section in Romans 8 about the security of God's promises. We talked about Romans 7 and 8, the fact that even when you are struggling with sin, even ongoing sin, where as you keep struggling and you're brought to a place of wretched man that I am, who can free me from this body of death, just this desperate cry of self-disdain, that you're able to lean on God's promises and know that you still have a hope for growth, even in this life, because the Spirit is in you, that you still have a hope for heaven, because no matter what you do and how you fail, God's promises weren't based on you to begin with. And also that as a member of God's family and as someone who is indwelt by God himself, you actually have a level of intimacy with God that's the, like, identifying mark of heaven. You have some of that intimacy with God now. The Holy Spirit even helps you to pray in the way that you're supposed to. That you're able to interact with God now, despite your failures, despite your sin. And he ends on an entire section of saying, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. There's no condemnation. The fact that when we are at those moments of sin and failure, that we're able to lean on God's promises, and he even finishes off with this statement in verse 38 and 39 of chapter 8, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Paul just has this entire beautiful section about the security of God's love for a believer and the fact that nothing that happens, nothing that you do, nothing that someone else does can possibly take that away from you. 
And immediately after that, he says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies me with, with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart for the Israelites. Why is that there? That is so random. It seems unrelated. But here's why. We talked about in Romans chapter 1 that the Roman church is a church that is either predominantly Gentile or entirely Gentile, and yet they are clearly a church that knows their Old Testament. Paul makes frequent reference to the Old Testament throughout the book of Romans, but also they're a faithful church, which means they know their Old Testament. Christians know the Old Testament, and the Roman church obviously did based on how Paul interacts with them. And so when you, as a Roman believer, as a Gentile, are sitting and listening to Paul say, God's promises are secure, no matter what you do, no matter how much failure marks your life, nothing can do away with God's promises because God's word is secure and God is honest. What's the question that a Gentile who knows their Old Testament might have. What about Israel then? God makes a lot of promises to Israel. Throughout the Old Testament, God makes many promises to the specific group of Israel that have never been fulfilled. And especially as Christians in the church, right now Israel is in a period of judgment. Israel has been set aside. Uh, We are the spiritual community of God currently, and to my knowledge, none of the people in this room are Jewish. What's the deal? You're telling us, Paul, that all of God's promises are secure. You're telling us that no matter what we do and how much failure marks our life, there is no chance of God taking those promises away from us. But I'm looking at a whole nation that God made a whole lot of promises to, and they've been set aside. You're telling me that I can trust God's word when they couldn't? What's the deal? And I'm going to walk you through, actually, some of the promises that God made to Israel. And we're going to address them because, again, there are promises that God has made to Israel that have not been fulfilled. The first of which is the Abrahamic covenant. The promise of promises, man. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, And the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your land, and from your kin, and from your father's house, to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation." I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse the one who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The three parts of the Abrahamic covenant, people, land, and seed. And in Genesis fifteen eighteen through 21, parts of the Abrahamic covenant have been fulfilled. Abraham did become a nation. Israel did become a great nation. Also, because of Jesus Christ, blessing has come from Abraham to the entire world. But the land promises? In Genesis 15, 18 through 21, on that day, the Lord cut a covenant with Abram, saying, To your seed I have given this land from the, uh, the river of Egypt, the Nile, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite and the Kenizzite, and the Kadmonite and the Hittite and the Pezzarite and the Rephaim, and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Girgashite and the Jebusite. Like he outlines the land that he's giving Abraham. And I have up there a map, and I'm going to walk you through the parts of this map. But first of all, that outline section outlined in purple, that is the area of land that God promised to Abraham. And I also have the passages that outline its borders. And then that little purple section in the middle, 
That is the land occupied by Israel during the reign of Solomon. And during Solomon's reign, Israel is at the largest that it's ever been. It's never gotten to be as large as it was back then, since then. And then those little orange stripes... That's not area occupied that by Israel, but that is area that has been subjugated by Israel. So the kings of those nations at that time were under the subjugation of, of Solomon. And then that little green thing on the like southwest, that's the Philistines. So the reason that I show you this is because at no point in history, even at Israel's largest, have they ever filled the land that God specifically said he would give them. You see that even in the northwest, there's a little sliver of land that is not covered uh, by the orange stripes. And also in the southwest, that little section going towards the Nile of Egypt, both of those sections have never actually even been ruled by Israel. Not at least at one time. And Israel has never occupied that land fully. So even the people who outline this, and they try to say that all of God's promises to Israel have been fulfilled, they acknowledge Um, there's no way Genesis 15 could have been referring to all of this land because Israel's never filled it. And so God has made a promise in no uncertain terms, and this is one of the easiest promises to show it has never been fulfilled. Okay, that's not the only one. There's the land promise, but also, let's talk about Isaiah 19. And I'm not going to have you turn there, but one of the things that Isaiah 19 talks about is it pictures a political situation where Egypt and Assyria have both allied themselves and subjugated themselves to the nation of Israel, and both nations have nationally converted to the worship of the Lord, and they even go to Jerusalem to worship alongside Israel. So a political situation of Israelite dominance, even over their neighbors, of national conversion of Assyria and Egypt, we've never seen that kind of political or religious situation ever. Additionally, just for another one, Isaiah chapter 60. I'm going to read you verses 10 to 11. But God speaks to Israel and he says, Foreigners will build up your walls and their kings will minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, and in my favor I have had compassion on you. Your gates will be open continually. They will not be closed by day or night, so that men may bring to you the wealth of nations, with their kings led in procession. For the nation and the kingdom which will not serve you will perish, and the nations will surely be laid waste. And so, again, that's also a political situation we have never seen. And you might argue that we had something like that during the reign of Solomon, but Isaiah was written long after Solomon was dead, and the nation had been divided. So, especially even now, Israelites' history is a history of everyone around them wanting them dead, I have never seen, nor are we currently seeing, a world where every nation that is hostile to Israel uh, just gets bonked. doesn't happen. And then, additionally, I'm going to read you Jeremiah 23, verses 5 through 8. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and prosper, and do justice in the land and righteousness in the land. And in his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called, Yahweh is our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they will no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt, 
But instead, as the Lord lives, who brought up and brought back the seed of the household of Israel from the north land and from all the lands where I had banished them, then they will live on their own soil. That's never happened. This is a political situation where specifically the Messiah, who we now know as Jesus Christ, is reigning over the nation of Israel in Israel, and where Israel that has been scattered across the world gets brought back to their land and occupies it. That has never happened. And in Jeremiah 33, one of the things that God says is he says, then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant for the day and my covenant for the night so that day and night will not be at their appointed time, then my covenant may also be broken with David, my servant so that he will not have a son to reign on his throne. And with the Levitical priests, my ministers, as the host of heaven cannot be counted and the sand of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the seed of David my servant and the uh, Levites who minister to me. Again, God never says he's willing to break any of the promises he's made to Israel. Ever. And yet, we have all these promises that are specifically made to Israel that haven't been fulfilled and that God specifically says he's never going to move away from. There are people who will look at the Old Testament promises to Israel and they'll say, well, the fulfillment of all of God's promises to Israel was the church, an international spiritual community. When God said he was going to give Israel specific land borders and a kingdom, what he actually meant was he was going to found the church. He was going to give a completely different set of blessings to a completely different group of people, and that's how he fulfilled his promises to Israel. If that's true, God is a snake and a liar, and his word is absolutely worthless. Worthless to the Israelites and worthless to you and I. You would never make a contract with someone who worked like that. If someone made a contract with you and signed on the line and they said, hey, If you give me $3,000, then on Thursday of next week, I'll give you a truck. And then you're like, okay, great. And you sign the dotted line, you give them the money, and then Thursday comes around and you say, hey man, where's that truck that you said you were going to give me? And he said, oh, I may have promised to give you a truck on Thursday of this week, but I have fulfilled that promise by giving a boat to my buddy Jeff. I've given him a greater fulfillment of the promise that I made to you, and thus my contract is fulfilled. I have fulfilled my wage, my promises with you by fulfilling a different set of promises to a completely different person that was never involved in our transaction. You'd call that person a liar and a snake, and you would never do business with them again. Or alternatively, they'll say, it's not that God made those promises to Israel and then fulfilled them by his blessings to the church, greater fulfillment to a different group of people. They'll say, when God made those promises to Israel, what he actually meant was that he was going to do these spiritual blessings for the church. And again, if a person signed a contract with you saying, on Thursday of next week, I'll give you a truck, and then they gave a boat to some other person, and you said, hey, bro, what's the problem? And then they said, well... At the time that I wrote that contract and at the time that I signed my signature, what I meant by giving you a truck on Thursday was I'm going to give a boat to this other guy on Tuesday. 
You see, it's not that I, I, I broke my promise. It's, it's that you misunderstood the words that I had spoken. Again, you'd call that person a liar and a snake. You'd say, I don't care what you claim to have meant. This is what you said, and it didn't happen. If God's promises to Israel, which are clearly laid out with the ethnic geopolitical nation Israel, which have specific terms, if he genuinely never intends to fulfill those promises because Israel was, was, was wicked, these unilateral, one-directional, unconditional promises that God says were not based on Israel's fulfillment, if he's able to set those aside, then how about for us? When, when God says, if you put your faith in Christ, I'm going to save you. If you put your faith in Christ, it doesn't matter how much you fail. It doesn't matter how much you trip. It doesn't matter what you do wrong. You're in my hands, and I'm going to satisfy the requirement for you. If we then die, and when we stand before Jesus, Jesus says, now I know. I know that you read in Romans the fact that you just had to put your faith in me and that that was all that was necessary for eternal life. But you see, what I actually meant is that if you went to the mosque and you became a Muslim, then I would let you into heaven. That's what I actually meant. Because, I mean, who in their right mind would have read a verse that talks about how you need to put your faith in Christ and believe? Who in their right mind reads that verse and thinks to themselves, this means you should put your faith in Christ and believe? Who reads a book like that? If God's promises to Israel are so incredibly misleading and poorly worded, we have no hope of being able to interpret any of the things he writes to us in the New Testament. Either God made promises that he's planning to not fulfill, in which case he's a liar and a snake, or he phrases his word in such a way that it's not possible to understand to begin with, in which case you, have, you can have no confidence in the things it, th- it seems to say. And so this is why people say that Romans 9 to 11 is the heart of the book, because Paul is looking at Israel and he's answering that objection He's answering the question of, if I'm a Gentile and it looks like Israel has been set aside and you're saying that God has made these promises to me, I'm looking at them. How can I have confidence when it seems like he reneged on his promises to them? It looks like God's a liar. It looks like God's promises can't be trusted. And you're telling me to trust them? Question marks. And that's what Romans 9 to 11 is about. And so that's what the next three weeks is about. And we're not going to get to the end of Paul's answer today, but in Romans 9 to 11, Paul sets some very important place stones. He sets some ground rules for his discussion in the remainder of the section. And so we're only going to get through a third of it today, but I'm personally looking forward to it quite a bit. Yeah. So... The first thing to identify with, with uh, 9, 1 through 5. Paul is talking about Israel. There are people who will look at this and they'll say Romans 9 to 11 is about the fact that Israel and the church are the same group. That there's not actually a real nation of Israel that's being referred to. Uh, he's talking about Christians when he talks about Israel. Well, okay. I'm telling you the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I wish that I myself were accursed. That's to say, like, damned. He's saying, I wish I could go to hell instead of my nation, my uh, kinsman Israel. 
separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belong the adoption as sons, the glory, the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, that's like the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the tribes of Israel, whose are the fathers, and, who, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh. He's talking about Israel, ethnic Israel, the ones who were the nation that by the flesh produced Jesus. Jesus was a Jew. My kinsmen according to the flesh. I wish I could trade places with them. I wish I could be sent to hell so that they don't have to be, those unbelieving Jews. He's referring to Christians, guys. No. So he's referring to ethnic Israel. And that's actually important because although that's clear, if you don't start with an understanding of that, the remainder of the section makes no sense whatsoever. So we'll just establish that. Okay. Verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Why is he saying that? Because that's the objection he's answering. It seems like God's promises have failed. And so he specifically says, it's not that. It is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's seed. But through Isaac your seed shall be named. And so, here's the first thing that we're establishing. When Paul says, through Isaac, your seed shall be named, there's actually a lot packed into that phrase. Paul has a much longer section on this idea in Galatians 3 and 4, which is written before Romans. And I like to think of it as the prequel of Romans. Not in the sense that one is greater or lesser than the other, but in the fact that it was written first. And last summer, I was teaching a class, and we actually spent an entire hour just on the way that Paul interacts with the Isaac and Ishmael story. So all that to say, there is a lot more with this verse that I'd like to say that I'm not going to say to save you time. So in short terms, the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Ishmael. Abraham's old. God promises that he's going to have a son and that through that son, the nation of Israel is going to come. And Abraham, he's an old guy. Sarah is way too old to have kids. And so Sarah has the fantastic idea. Sarah is Abraham's wife. Hey, Abraham, sleep with my maid, sleep with my servant, and have a kid through her. And Abraham's like, that's a great idea. Uh, It was not a great idea. Mistakes were made. And uh, Hagar, Sarai's servant, she bears Abraham a son named Ishmael. And Abraham tried to, through his own ingenuity, through his own effort, through his own wisdom, help God along. You know, God told him that he was going to have a son. And Abraham's like, you know, God, I don't think you can pull that off quite, but let me help you out. And so Ishmael is born and God comes to Abraham before Isaac is born. And Abraham actually says, God, please just fulfill your promises through Ishmael. And God refuses. And he says, no. I am not going to fulfill promises through Israel. I am going to give you a son instead. And the significant thing with this is that then Isaac is born, and it's through Isaac that Israel comes along. And the thing that Paul learns from that in Galatians 3 and 4, and that he's now reiterating here, is that God does not accomplish his salvation through the effort of people. God doesn't use your flesh. God doesn't use your strength. God doesn't use your wisdom. God fulfills his promises and his salvation by his own power, and he gives his salvation to people not who help him, but to people who trust him. God says, trust me, and I'll take care of it. 
I don't want people who think that they have to help me along. And it doesn't mean that you don't exert effort, but there's a difference in the way that you exert effort and the way that you do work when you're thinking, I need to accomplish this because God can't handle it. And the way that you exert effort and do work when you're thinking, nothing I do matters, God's going to work through me. I'm going to do the best I can, but I understand it's not my effort that causes this to work. God's going to show up. God doesn't want your strength. God doesn't want your wisdom. God wants your trust. And that's the thing that Paul learns from the story of Isaac and Ishmael. And so the first issue we see with Israel, Israel at this time is not putting their faith in God. They're an apostate nation. They are not learning the lesson from Isaac and Ishmael that Paul had learned. And in verse 8, he says, that is, the children of the flesh are not the children of God, but the children of promise are considered the seed. And so the point that he's making is that God does have promises that he made to the nation of Israel. But to fulfill those promises to Israel does not mean that every individual Israelite receives the promises. And so at every stage in Israel's history, there has been ethnic Israel, but there's also been people that were actually saved. One of the examples that comes up later in this section, I actually don't know if it's in chapter 9, I think it's chapter 11, but one of the things that comes up is that God refers back to the story of Elijah, where Elijah is like, I am the only person in Israel who's still being faithful. I'm the only person in Israel who's left. And God says, cool your jets. There are 7,000 people in Israel that I have kept from worshiping the Baals. There is a remnant still. And so God refers to a subsection of the ethnic group that he actually saves. So we see it does not mean, like just because God doesn't give salvation to every individual Israelite does not mean that he's not still going to fulfill his promises to the group. So there's a distinction there. All right. Nine, for the, vis- the word of promise, at this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebecca also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. And at this point, we've already finished the faith thing, but now we're going to move on to a different thing that Paul needs to make sure we understand about God. First of all, he doesn't have to fulfill promises and salvation to every individual Israelite. And now we're getting to point two. And not only this, but there was Rebecca also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that the purpose of God, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there any unrighteousness with God? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it does not depend on the one who wills or the one who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up in order to demonstrate my power in you and in order that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he has mercy, and he hardens whom he desires. And so here's the issue that we're addressing in this section. Before Jacob and Esau were born, God had already chosen who he was going to work salvation through. And then he also gives the example of Pharaoh. 
He gives the example of someone who does something that's brutally, brutally sinful, and even that was under the purview of God. Which, I don't have time to dive into this and give an entire support for this idea, but I'm going to state it quickly. God is completely sovereign over absolutely everything. What does that mean that God is completely sovereign over absolutely everything? It means that God is in complete control over absolutely everything, including actions. And just two quick verses that illustrate this idea. Proverbs 21 verse 1. The heart, or sorry, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of uh, in the hand of Yahweh. He turns it wherever he pleases. And so what this is saying is that God is in control of the decisions of the king which means that God is in control of the king. He's in the control of a person. And not only any person, but the king is the most important person. The king's decisions have ramifications for everyone living in his purview. And so God is saying when something really, really big happens, the largest thing you can think of, the decrees of a king, I'm in control of that. That when Congress passes a law, when Joe Biden signs an executive order, there's an extent to which, yeah, they're doing that. But actually what's behind that is God is in control of even them. That God's in control of people, but also God is in control of the most important big deal thing that happens. And then on the flip side, the complete opposite end, Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap but it's every uh, decision is from Yahweh. That when you toss a coin, a, a lot is like tossing a coin or rolling a die, that the most insignificant piece of random chance that ever happens, God's also in control of that. We might say that the very placement of every atom, where the electron is in the electron cloud, God's actually in control of even that. The most small, insignificant thing that happens, God is in direct control of it. So from the most small, insignificant thing to the biggest, most wide ramification thing, God is in complete control of everything, including human actions and including human sin. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, after Joseph's brothers had sold him into slavery and they meet him years and years later, he says to them, what you did, you meant for evil, but God meant it for good. Your actions, God had an intention behind them. That even the sinful actions of Joseph's brothers, God was in control over. The specific example that Paul lists here is Pharaoh. That before Pharaoh ever became Pharaoh, before Pharaoh was even born, before the entire situation happened, God planned that Pharaoh would be in that position. Exodus says that God had hardened Pharaoh's heart. It also says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. But God hardened Pharaoh's heart, caused him to refuse to let Israel go, so that as Pharaoh was being obstinate, God could just keep doing radical punishment after radical punishment, incredible miracle after incredible miracle, and eventually wipe out Pharaoh and his entire army. God used Pharaoh and made sure he was stubborn as a mule so that he would never break or bend while God was absolutely destroying him and his nation. That God looks at the actions of Pharaoh and says, this was my intention behind your actions. So God is sovereign over everything that happens, including human decisions, including human sin. Wild. 
And that has ramifications because it also has ramifications over who God saves. Because before this, Paul was saying, it's not the children of Israel that are saved, but it's the children according to the promise. It's those who put their faith in God. It's not enough to be ethnically Jewish. You actually need to put faith in God and be saved that way. And he says, also, your own decision in that is under God's control. Why does this matter? Verse 19. Which, I'm going to read verse 19, and then we're going to talk a bit more about that. You will say to me then, who, uh, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? And this is the natural question that comes up as a result of that. If God is in control over everything, if God is in control over who becomes a Christian, if God is in control over who even has faith, Does that mean that God specifically chose people that he was going to send to hell? That God made people for the sole purpose of them living and dying and burning and he made them anyway? Yes. Does, does, well, okay then. Um, if, if God is sovereign over my sin, that when I perform a sinful action, that God sovereignly willed that to happen, that in kind of an ultimate sense, I had no control over that. God decided that I was going to sin, and so I sinned. Why is it my fault? How can God hold me accountable for an action that I took because in his sovereign control, he decided I would take it? How does that work? Paul poses this question, and the reason that I explained God's sovereignty real quickly is because if you don't have that in mind, you won't understand why he's asking that. And on that issue, by the way, um, Paul doesn't answer. He doesn't actually answer the question, if God is completely sovereign over even my sin, why is it my fault and not God's fault? He doesn't answer that question. Which there are a couple things that we know for sure. We know for sure that God is sovereign over absolutely everything, even our sinful actions. We also know that God is not responsible for sin, but rather we are responsible for sin. James says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God is not tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but each man is carried away by his own lust. So we also know on the opposite end of that, God does not sin, God does not tempt people, God is not responsible for sin. And we are responsible for sin. How do those work together? I don't know. And that was an issue that I spent a lot of my life studying. Uh, I, I remember sitting where you are, being in, in high school especially, and hearing people give that answer and thinking to myself, you scrub, I could answer that question. And I, I thought I had the answer. And as I've gotten older and as I've gotten wiser and as I've studied more and more, I have realized little John did not have the answer. <laughs> I have never found any answer to this question that adequately harmonized the two things. I have never heard anyone suggest something that was passable. And even Paul himself doesn't answer the question. And honestly, I don't think Paul knew. However, if you've ever heard of St. Augustine, he has a book. It's called On Grace and Free Will. It is the single best book outside the Bible that I've ever read on the issue, and I would recommend it. It's all about that. But Paul doesn't answer the question. Instead, he says on verse 20, On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Will the thing molded say to the molder, Why did you make me like this? 
Or does the potter, uh, or does not the potter have authority over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And what if God, wanting to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath having been prepared for destruction? We don't like referring to non-Christians as vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. That makes God sound mean. Also, God uses it to describe himself, so I'm chill. And in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. And so Paul says, he doesn't say, here's this crazy issue, here's the answer. He says, here's this crazy issue. How is God not responsible for sin when he's sovereign over it? He doesn't say, here's how that works together. He instead says, actually, you don't have the right to ask that question. God's not in our courtroom. We're in God's courtroom. We don't get to look at God and say, okay, God, justify yourself to us. Explain to me how you're not sinful when you're in control. Paul says, and honestly, I don't know even if in heaven we'll have the answer to this question. I hope we do, because I'd like to know. But even if we don't, Paul says, God doesn't have to actually explain this to you. You don't have a right to ask. You don't have a right to implicate God. You don't have a right to call him into question. He explains what he wants to explain. He does what he wants to do. Not your place to have an issue with it. And it's interesting that he answers that way. But now, here's the reason that's valuable. We're asking the question, if God made a bunch of promises to Israel that have not been fulfilled, that don't look like they're going to be fulfilled, and he's made a whole bunch of promises to us that you're saying we should definitely trust, well, it looks like he's not answering, he's not, he's not keeping his promises to Israel, so why should I trust him? Paul doesn't answer that yet, but he lays an expectation He says this, there is no one, anyone, who gets to demand something of God. God had given Israel promises. God has given Israel extraordinary grace. God has made Israel his special people. If there is anyone who might be able to go to God and say, God, give me what you owe me, it's an Israelite. But the thing that Paul clarifies is that there is absolutely no one. There is no individual. There is no group who gets to go to God and say, God, give me what you owe me. Rather, God gives what he wants to give to whom he wants to give it. God has complete control over whom he saves, whom he doesn't save. He has complete control of who he shows kindness to, who he doesn't show kindness to. And if God has to show you kindness... If God has to give you grace, it's not grace, it's a payment. And one of the things that demonstrates that God actually has the right to save who he wants, to give gifts to who he wants to give gifts to, is the fact that he doesn't give them to everyone. If everyone was saved, we might think that everyone had a right to be saved. But the fact that only some people are saved and that God on his own has complete control over who those people are, it means that grace is not a payment that we can demand from God, but instead it is a gift that we must be grateful for. God didn't owe me salvation. God didn't owe you salvation. There is no one who has ever lived who God owed anything to. And so when God gives you goodness, when God gives you grace, when God gives you salvation, especially when you don't deserve it, 
when you exactly deserved the opposite, you are left in a position where you just have to thank him. So Paul has established not everyone in Israel has to receive every promise that God gives for him to keep his promises to Israel as a group. Israel is not putting their faith in God. And also, God's in control of whom he dispenses gifts to. So even as we discuss the issue of God's promises to Israel, we need to start in a place of no one demands anything of God. God gives what he wants to whom he wants to give it to. And no one has leverage. Now, let's talk about what he gives people anyway. Despite the fact that we don't deserve it, despite the fact we can't demand it. Verse 24, even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. God's saving Gentiles. As he also says in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they shall be called the sons of the living God. Now that should prick your ears. Because if there's any of you who have read the book of Hosea, then you know it has absolutely nothing at all to do with Gentiles. It has to do with Israel. We're going to come back to that. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. Remnant just means portion of, left over. For the Lord will execute his word on the land thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabaoth, which is just Lord of hosts, Lord of armies, had left to us a seed, we would have been like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness laid hold of righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith? Here's why this is significant. I want to walk you through the argument that was just made there. And in order to do that, we need to talk about Hosea, which I love Hosea. It's like my second favorite minor prophet, and it's such a good book. And I'm just going to run you real quick through the book of Hosea. The book of Hosea starts with God talking to a guy named Hosea, and he says, Hosea, nice to meet you. Uh, Go marry a prostitute. Get over there, marry a prostitute, have children of harlotry, uh, because Israel commits blatant harlotry in the land. And that's an oof. That's rough. And then after that, they have some kids. And it says, uh, I'm not going to go through each of the kids, but they have three kids. The first one, it specifically says that she bore to Hosea. And the second two, it says that she conceived them and bore them, but it doesn't say she bore them to Hosea, which has led a lot of people to believe, and I agree with them, Uh, that the first one was Hosea's and the second two were some other guys or some other multiple guys. So Hosea was also raising kids that weren't his. And then in chapter three, God comes back to Hosea and says, hey, Hosea, uh, go and buy your wife back from slavery. She had apparently gotten herself sold back into prostitution. She was at a brothel. And so God shows up to Hosea and says, hey, Hosea, uh, marry marry a prostitute. Uh, ha- have other people's kids. Raise them. She's going to cheat on you. Oh, she managed to get herself sold back into prostitution? Psh, Hosea, go buy her back. And the book of Hosea is a story where God looks back at Israel specifically And the word that it uses over and over, and I'm warning you because I'm about to use it a bit, is the word whore. 
Hosea refers to Israel as a whore. Only Ezekiel 16 and Ezekiel 23 speak of Israel in more, shall we say, unflattering terms. And God looks at Israel and he says, from the time you were young, you have been unfaithful to me. I have been a good husband to you and you have gone and whored after all these other lands, after idols, where from the time Israel is brought out of (laughs) Egypt... They're brought out of Egypt with an extraordinary deliverance, and then while they're in the wilderness, the first thing they do is complain. Man, God, did you bring us out of Egypt because there weren't enough graves? Did you bring us out of slavery just to have us starve to death? Did you bring us out of Egypt just so we could thirst to death? And eventually, they all get together and they say, hey guys, let's kill Moses and Aaron and go back. And then God executes the ringleaders of that, almost wipes out Israel, starts fresh with Moses, and then decides not to. And then they get to the promised land, and they do so much better. No. They get to the promised land, and they're idol worshipers. They're unfaithful. Within a few generations, you have people in the tribe of Benjamin repeating episodes from Sodom and Gomorrah. And then they get a king over them. And you have like a few good kings, but basically the entire story of First and Second Kings is Israel's being unfaithful, Israel is worshiping idols, Israel is sacrificing their own kids to Molech, and despite the fact that God sends prophet after prophet after prophet who are begging the people of Israel, turn back to God, be faithful, he will bless you, despite the fact that God disciplines them, despite the fact that God pleads with them, Israel is just unfaithful. In the words of Hosea, she's a spiritual whore. And then God finally sends his own son to them. He sends the Messiah that's been promised and Israel in in normal fashion crucifies him. And for the last 2000 years has been rejecting the Messiah that God sent to them. Israel says to Hosea, Hosea, I want you to go marry a whore. She's going to have other people's kids. She's going to sell herself back into slavery. You're not allowed to divorce her. And Hosea, do you want to know why I'm making you marry a whore and stay married to a whore? Because my wife, Israel, is a whore. And I love her anyway. And the book of Hosea is a straight look at the brutal unworthiness of Israel and the fact that despite that, God says, I will not abandon you. I'm going to chastise you, I'm going to punish you, and I'm going to bring you back. And you will no longer call me my master, you will call me my husband. I'm going to love you anyway. Hosea, your relationship with Gomer is a picture of my relationship with Israel. The argument that you might think Paul is making when you read this and you're not aware of Hosea is you might think that Paul is saying God saved Gentiles. Why? Because the Old Testament says he's going to save Gentiles. I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not my beloved, my beloved. And it shall be in that place where it was said to them, you are not my people, that they shall be called sons of the living God. That's specifically about Israel, not Gentiles. That's a statement about Israel, not Gentiles. The argument Paul is making is not God saves Gentiles because the Old Testament says he's going to save Gentiles. There are passages he could have quoted for that. He doesn't. Paul's argument is this. Would you look at how God handles Israel? Israel sucked! 
Israel was idolatrous. Israel was unfaithful. Israel was sinful. Israel gave God every single possible reason to abandon his promises to them, and despite every advantage, they blew it, and God still holding on to them. His argument is, God is so gracious. God, like, wakes up in the morning, and God doesn't sleep. God, like, wakes up in the morning and just oozes righteousness oozes grace, oozes generosity, that people do things that are sinful and wrong and God doesn't even think about it. He's like, whoa! Grace! Paul says, look at this obstinate, horrible, unfaithful, unrighteous, undeserving people, Israel, if God holds on to them, is it any wonder that he also saves some Gentiles? Look at Israel. If God's saving them, Of course he's going to save Gentiles. You crazy? And the thing that makes that interesting is that he then follows that up with some quotations from Isaiah that talk about the fact that even in judgment, God preserves Israel. Think about the miracle that it is that Israel is still a people. Israel is brought out of Egypt 3,400 years ago. They've been conquered. They've been scattered. They've been scattered multiple times. After getting scattered through Assyria, someone else comes Babylon, scatters Judah through the nation of Babylon, and then they're brought back to Israel, and they suck there again, and they keep getting scattered. And despite the fact that the Jewish people is scattered around the four corners of the world... And at this point, you would have expected any other people group to be assimilated into their surrounding cultures and no longer be a distinct ethnicity. Jews have been a distinct group for 3,400 years. Even now, there's a nation of Israel that has been reestablished after World War II, and everyone around them wants them dead. All of their neighbors are trying to blow them up. It is a miracle that Israel's still on the map. It is a miracle that Israel still exists. And Paul says it's because God is specifically preserving them. That you take a passing glance at Israel, God is clearly being real gracious to them, despite how terrible they are. Paul says, you, as a Gentile, which again, this is a response to the objection, you're saying I can trust God's promises to me. What about Israel? They can't trust God's promises to them. And Paul says, actually, the way that you, as a Gentile, can be completely sure of the promises God makes to you is the fact that he's so incredibly, consistently gracious to Israel. The security of God's promises to Israel is the basis of the security of God's promises to us. Paul doesn't say, even if God's not faithful to Israel, you can still trust his word to you. He says, no, uh, yes, you are correct. It's like if you have a magician, that you, like, you chain their ha- your hands, you put a chain around their arms, you chain their legs together, you hog tie them, and then the magician like, looks up at you and says, LOL, this isn't good enough. Put me in a chest and chuck me in the ocean. That's like what Paul just did. It's like, man, Paul, i got a real good answer for you. And Paul's like, not only is that uh, objection good, that objection's great. You say we can't trust God's promises to Israel? Well, if you're correct, then you're right. You can't trust God's promises to you either. So this is actually very convenient. He could have made the argument, the Old Testament says he's going to save Gentiles. Instead, he makes the argument, look how gracious God is toward Israel. Of course he saves Gentiles which has two functions. 
Function number one, it gets in your mind the fact that God is unendingly gracious and consistently faithful to Israel, despite their unfaithfulness to him. Just like Hosea, who gets cheated on and cheated on and cheated on, who's raising other men's kids, whose wife sells herself back into prostitution slavery, which like that is an oof, and then still is being faithful to her. That's a picture of God and his people. It gets that fresh in your mind because Paul's about to expand on that idea in chapter 10 and 11. And then it also confirms that if it's true that God's promises to Israel are not going to be fulfilled, we have no assurances of them either. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness laid hold of righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith? But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not attain that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as though it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a rock of stumbling and a rock of offense, and the one who believes upon him will not be put to shame. So it's this double reality of God has made promises to Israel. God is going to keep his promises to Israel. This generation is not putting their faith in God. We have no expectation that they're going to believe. So the ground rules that Paul has set are this. One, no one can make any demands of God. No matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter what group you're from, you can't go up to God and say, God, give me what you owe me. God is in control over whom he is kind to, even down to the absolute sovereignty of their salvation. God even decides before the foundation of the world, as Ephesians chapter 1 says, who's going to be saved and who's not going to be saved. God is in 100% control over whom he saves and whom he has grace to. That's his divine right as God. So in other words, you can't expect anything good from God in the the sense of you can't demand anything good of God. You are entitled to nothing at all whatsoever. And that's an important place to start from. God owes you nothing. However, God is so incredibly gracious that despite the fact that he owes you absolutely nothing, he gives you everything. God saves you. God decided you were going to convert. God gave his son for you. God, is, God owes nobody anything, but God just oozes grace like a runner oozes sweat. Just comes out of his pores, man. Just comes down like a flood all over people. So of course he saves Gentiles. Look at Israel. And that still doesn't answer the question of what about God's promises to Israel? but it lays an important foundation. And I'm looking forward to going through the rest of it over the next couple weeks. But with that, let's pray. Lord, thank you for the fact that you, that you're so gracious. You don't owe us anything. None of us are, are Christians because we did something right. None of us are Christians because there was some inherent worthiness in us. Lord, there's no one that you give any gifts to that deserve them. You've made the world. You've given us existence. You give us a sun. You give us rain. You give us clear skies, good food. You give us it all. Any good we have, it comes down from the Father of lights in whom there is no shifting shadow. Not because you owe us something, but because you're gracious. Because it's just in your nature to be so ridiculously kind that there's no explanation for it. Lord, thank you for the Thank you for the case study of Israel. The fact that despite the fact that Israel was a spiritual whore, 
that you're still faithful to them. And that's able to be the basis of and a reminder of the fact that although we are also spiritual whores, that you're faithful to us. That your promises are secure, not in spite of your failure to keep your promises to Israel, but your promises to us are demonstrated to be secure because of the fact that you're not even letting go of Israel. I pray that this would be an encouraging study for each of us and that you would make it like that. Amen. So I do have an activity. I want you guys to read. I want you guys to get into groups, like small groups. I want you to read Hosea chapter 2 and Hosea chapter 3. And the thing I want you to think about is this. Hosea chapter 2 and 3 is not about Christians. It's about Israel. But look at the way that God interacts with Israel. And think about this. Bring to mind the things that you think make God angry with you the things that you think God has enmity with you over, the things that you feel like, because this is in my life, God is angry with me, God is hostile towards me. The big takeaway that I want you to have from this week is peace. I don't even know how to get you to talk about that. I don't know how to get you to feel that. But I want you to read Isaiah 2 through 3. Look at the way that God talks about Israel and the way that he dealt with Israel. And then think about the things that you feel like God can't have grace for in your life. Bring them right to mind. And then know that if you're a Christian, you have peace. God doesn't hold it against you. God loves you. God lets you come right back. I hope that's encouraging. Let's break up Hosea 2 through 3, talk about it a bit, pray for each other. That's all I got for you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Shaking Scripture's Leaves. If you have any questions or if you want to discuss anything from this podcast, you can email me at johnhorning at gmail.com. And you can go to the Shaking Scripture's Leaves website at johnhorning.org, which not only has my other podcast episodes, but also has some blog posts on other issues. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time.